Uh, John 1, 6-8, it says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Before we go in there, let me just point out, it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and we're studying the book of John. Two different Johns. Okay, we've got John the Apostle who wrote this book, and then we've got uh, the guy whom he's talking about, the guy whom he's referencing, that's John. We call him John the Baptist. Um, he's not called John the Baptist here. We kind of, he's more like John the Witness, okay? But it's two different Johns. Let me read it one more time. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that you have gifted us with uh, truth and that we have the great privilege, Lord, of being able to open it here together today, that you provided a place and a time for us to gather and be able to um, just think about you and talk about you and celebrate you and meet with you. God, that's the thing. We don't just want to do this just us here, Lord. We, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present and you'd be active and that you'd be speaking to our hearts. God, I pray that only truth is spoken today. Then as, and as truth is conveyed, Lord, that you would be with every single person. You'd open our hearts, help us to respond in faith. Please, Father, we ask for your mercy today. Would you, would you show us favor and would you uh, move in power uh, as you're here with us? We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, for those of you who were here last week, I, you might remember I shared an illustration from a movie called Lord of the Rings. Okay? And I talked with you guys about it. I, I, I sh- talked to you about the light of Arendelle's star that Frodo was given. Remember, Frodo was given uh, this light from Galadriel the elf. And, and we're told in the book that Frodo you know, clutched that little bottle of light that he kept it in his pocket, he clutched that little bottle of light that shone bright. And, and as he clutched it, it just sent these like surges of peace and comfort through his heart and his mind. That that light was said to be a light um, that would, when all other lights fade, this would still be shining bright. Actually, the darker the night became, the brighter the light would shine. And uh, the light of Arendelle's star, which is what this little bottle of liquid light was called, it was said to have come from two trees, okay? That's where, that's where the liquid came from, was two, two trees. And I shared that illustration because I said, well, we too have a light that when all other lights go out, will never go out, that, that the darker the night becomes, the, the, the light will shine ever brighter. We too have that same light, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, and he has made a way through the darkness um, and by, through two trees. I said, you know, he suffered, he endured the tree of death, that we might eat from the tree of life in the very presence of God. Okay, so I shared that illustration if you remember. So the days leading up to sun, last Sunday, and then the couple days following, I'm, I'm like, this, this illustration has just been like churning through my mind. Um, I've just been kind of like meditating on it, thinking and kind of swimming in this illustration. And so, so on Sunday night, as I'm thinking through this, I kind of just kind of got me in the mood. And so, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the movie on. So when I turned on, Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie of Lord of the Rings. And long story short, over this last week, I've rewatched the trilogy of, of Lord of the Rings, right? So, but listen, look, I'm just letting you in on my world, okay? I'm letting you in. I'm being a little vulnerable here. Watching this, because, you know, it's hard to find two and a half hours to sit and watch a movie, right, if you've got the little, little ones. So just throughout the week, as I've had a little bit of time, I've just turned it on and I've just kind of made my way through the trilogy, there is something that has just, um, it's like my heart has been swept away as I'm watching these movies. My heart has just been like carried away. Just like, um, I've just been caught up in this epic drama. 
I, felt, I honestly feel like a, a kid. I feel like a kid who's just been swept away in these romantic adventures. And I've been, I've, been, I've been inspired. I've been motivated. I've been emotional. I feel like I've been on the verge of tears all week. I'm just being honest. And, and so I'm, I talked to a couple people about it. I'm like, why, why does a movie, why does a story like that have such power in my heart? Like, what, what, how can that have such a profound and deep effect on my heart and my mind? I was thinking, what, what is it about these stories? What it is about these movies? Um, I'm serious. Like, I've been, I'm tell, I was telling Joe in the office this week, I was like, I feel like I'm on the verge of tears today because I'm just so swept away in this grand, like, epic, this grand drama. And here's what I've, here's what I've realized. In these movies, in these stories, in these grand romantic adventures, I have seen a reason, I have seen a glimpse of the reason for which I was created. I have seen a shadow uh, of, of, of the reason I was created. Um, um, by the way, I'm not saying that I'm created to fight orcs and to go destroy the one ring, right? I'm saying the reason I'm so fascinated by these great stories of romance and epic world-changing adventure is because that's what I am called to as a Christian. That's why my heart like, just burns when I watch these movies and I read these stories because that's what I was created for. That's what you were created for is to be a part of that. Um, this is exactly what John is communicating in verses 6 through 8. Remember I told you um, last week that the first 18 verses uh, of the book of John is, is the prologue. It's the prologue to the rest of his gospel. The first 18 verses are this poetic and soaring and deep and high and wide and long description of the identity and the mission of Jesus. But very oddly, right in the middle of this like soaring statement about who Jesus is and what he came to do, John interjects this verses 6 through 8. And if you you know, you, I read it just a couple minutes ago. You might be thinking, really, that's what we're going to talk about today? Um, it, I mean, just a, it's kind of, at first glance, it's kind of like a seemingly trivial statement um, in light of all this great, profound, deep truths that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. So far in John's book, he said stuff like, in the beginning was the Word, right? That's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. These deep, profound statements about the Trinity, about the Trinity and about the Word becoming flesh. And then he says, you know, he says stuff like Jesus is life and Jesus who is life, not who has life, Jesus who is life. He came into this world and, and he lit up the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, all these great profound um, gospel truths. And then John says, and then God sent a man. He sent a man. He sent a human. His name was John and he was a witness to Jesus. Oh, he's not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then, and then John goes back on and he continues to unveil who Jesus is. He's like, the true light is Jesus, and, and you know, he comes in grace, and he comes in truth, and he comes in glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and all these beautiful, majestic gospel truths. But right in the middle here, he puts this thing about John the Baptist. And it's kind of weird. Why would he do that? Commentators over the centuries have asked, why would John do that? Was that just a little side note as he was writing? He's like, oh yeah, John, and he wrote this down? Or is there a reason behind it all? And I absolutely think there is. Um, up until now, Jesus Christ was said to be the word, to be the life, and to be the light. And it looks as if he's going to spread this gospel, spread this light, coming in in the sovereign. He's beginningless. He's all-powerful. He's a sovereign power and brightness. And it's almost as if he's going to come and he's just going to just light up the world in his own power and his own brightness. But John says, no, 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 that's not the case. That's not how it's going to go down. John's saying the word, the life, the light are going to be spread through the witness of a human That's the profound truth. Start to wrap your mind around that. 
all these things, all this great majestic gospel truths, and it's going to be spread by a human, the sovereign, beginningless, all-powerful God of the universe from whom, through whom, and for whom all things exist, has chosen to integrate, has chosen to use measly, weak, frail human beings like you and like me. In the words of John Piper, uh, he says that he says, the word and the life and the light are coming into the world, but they are not going to conquer this darkness the way a bolt of lightning brightens the night. They are going to conquer it by lighting millions of cold, dead human torches with the oxygen of the gospel and the mysteriously spontaneous combustion of the new birth. I'm going to read that again. The word and the life and the light are coming into the world, but they are not going to conquer this darkness the way a bolt of lightning brightens the night. They're going to conquer it by lighting millions of cold, dead human torches with the oxygen of the gospel and the mysteriously spontaneous combustion of the new birth. You see, this is what's been undoing me this week. I've watched the movies before. They ha- okay, it's, it's not that I was just caught up in some new you know, tale. This is when I watch movies like Lord of the Rings and I watch movies like Braveheart and I watch these epic battle scenes where these men, you know, are on the front lines and they're facing these armies of darkness and they're facing these armies of tyranny and armies of oppression. There's just something in my heart that just longs to be in that scene. Am I the only one? Anybody else that way? Okay, I just lo- I want to be on the front lines. I want to be the little guy in the front with the pitchfork with the makeup on his face. Like, I want that to be me. Um, I want to be a part of something that matters. I want to fight on the front lines of a world-changing, era-defining, cosmically significant battle. And so I watch these movies, and I listen to these stories, and I read these stories to my kids. I don't read Braveheart to my kids, by the way. Am I going to clarify that? But I watch these movies, and my, literally my heart just like burns inside of me. I want that. Um, do you know the reason why I think this, that those, those movies had such a profound effect on my life this week? is because at the same time that I was kind of making my way through these great epic trilogies, I was studying John 1, 6 through 8. And I was seeing that what, what I'm so caught up in fiction is actually reality. It's reality. John is saying, the light has come into the world, and you and I are not only invited to enjoy the benefits of that light, but what, what happens is the light of the world comes in and he sets me ablaze. He sets me ablaze and then he says, now go charge. Charge, surge forward into the darkness, light it up. He uses me and he uses you. How unbelievable is that? Let's start thinking about that. Um, we spent nine months last year going through a series called History where we walked through the Bible together. Um, we said over and over and over and over, this is our mantra, you are not the main character of the story, Jesus is the main character of the story. The Bible that was not written, you know, as a bunch of neat, you know, little principles and words of advice for you to have your best life now, okay? Um, it's not my story. It's not your story. It's his story. It's Jesus' story. But the amazing thing is, is that he lets us enter into that story. We get to play a role. Not only are we recipients, he gives us a part to play. But listen, I know many of you in here today have yet to enter into that story. God has ransomed you. He has paid for you. He has invited you into the family. He has invited you into this great drama of of redemption and renewal of the cosmos. He has given you lines, and he has given you a unique part to play in unique scenes that only can be uh, moved on and acted in by you. 
with your context and the way he designed you, and for whatever reason, you have chosen to keep it at arm's length. You've chosen not to act, not to move. You have yet to embrace your role in the great redemptive drama of history. And you might be thinking, really? Wow, John 1, 6 through 8, you're getting all that from John 1, 6 through 8. Okay, might be just stretching it a little bit far. Okay, because this is the past about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was talked about in the Old Testament. He was the forerunner of Jesus. Uh, he had a, you know, a unique relationship with God. He had a unique mission by God. You're going, you know, stretching a little far. <clears throat> no, I'm not. Um, Acts chapter 1. I'm arguing with myself. Acts chapter 1. Uh, move forward in the narrative here. Jesus, after he dies on the cross and after he's resurrected, he tells his disciples right before he ascends into heaven, he says, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, yes, John the Baptist had a unique relationship with God. He had a unique mission by God to be a witness to Jesus. But so do you. So do you. It says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, now you are going to be moments. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you are to be his witnesses. We follow in John's footsteps. Jesus says in John 17, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The word sent that Jesus uses is in Latin, it's missio. That's where we get our word mission from, missionary. We have this idea of missionaries as just some religious elite albeit socially awkward, often culturally confused, minority, living in, I can say that I was a missionary for a little bit, okay? Give me some grace. Um, (laughs) Living in some distant foreign land, okay? Um, But the reality is, according to John 1, Acts 1, John 17, Matthew 28, essentially the rest of the scriptures, period. If you are a Christian, you are a missionary. If you are a Christian here today, you are a missionary. You are born again to be a dynamic part of the epic drama of cosmic renewal and redemption. So if that's the case, if that's true, then let's explore for just a few minutes what it means to live a life of a witness. What does it mean to live the missional life, to follow John's lead in being a witness? So we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look together at the stimulus of the missional life, the nature of the missional life, and the fruit of the missional life. What's the stimulus, the nature, and the fruit of a life of mission? So let's look first. Stimulus. What stimulates mission? Um, it's very simple. It's a relationship with God through Jesus. That's what stimulates it. And it's an experience of God. We say this all the time here, but knowing God uh, is not just an intellectual assent. It's not that you just now, uh, you know, understand some new things. Like it just clicked in your brain. That's not all it is. It's a dynamic rebirth We're going to study this in just a few chapters when Jesus talks to Nicodemus. He talks about being born again. Um, Being a Christian is not just that your sins are forgiven and the slate is wiped clean. Is that true? Absolutely. But it, it goes even deeper than that. The Bible says that when you become a Christian, you actually experience a spiritual rebirth. You become a new creation. You are reborn with new spiritual DNA. You're born with new eyes. You're born with a new mind. You're born with a new heart and a new purpose. You are reborn to be a witness. Your life is no longer led by you. It's no longer centered on you. It no longer exists for your own glory and for your own renown. 
Your life is now led by him, and it's centered on him, and it exists for spreading his name and renown. Um, I just told you in Acts 1, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. This is a natural byproduct of the Holy Spirit making his home in your heart. It's a byproduct. When the Holy Spirit makes his home in your heart, every area of your life is going to be affected. Your family, your values, your priorities, your uh, decisions, everything is going to get utterly transformed. It has to. It absolutely has to. Some of you, some of you don't, don't like that part of it. Some of you are like, well, I want, I want the forgiveness. I want my past to be wiped away. I want the benefits. I don't know if I'm comfortable with Jesus, you know, coming and actually being my king in every area. Like, okay, this part, this is cool over here. This is good. Don't touch my money. Don't you dare touch my money. You can have this over here. Don't be king over the way I spend of my budget. Or, you know, for some of you, it's okay about the money. Be like, yeah, but my, I, need, I need me time. I got the me time. Don't, don't touch that. There's some things that are just sacred. You don't want God to actually be king, Lord, over your life. But I hate to say it, but that's not what it means to be a Christian. He's your Lord and he's your Savior. He's your Lord. That means master. He's your king. We say it often here, but we say you cannot pay for his love. It's a gift, right? You cannot pay for his love, but it will cost you everything. You can't pay for his love, but it will cost you everything. I've heard it said like this. If I were to bring an elephant into your house this afternoon while you, are, while you are out running errands. And I let the elephant hang out in your house for a few hours, and then you come home in the evening. Even if I've taken the elephant back out of the house before you get home, you're going to know that the elephant was there, right? Is there any question about that? You're going to know that the elephant was there. The magnitude, the, 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 the bigness, what, what word am I thinking of? The magnitude of the animal, of the being, demands that it will have transformed your home, right? It's going to have stepped on things. It will have destroyed things. It will have rearranged some furniture, okay? You will have known that that elephant was there. How much more if God has made his home in your heart? Do you understand? The Bible's definition of a Christian is someone in whom God has made his dwelling, that's the biblical definition of a Christian, is someone in whom God has made his dwelling. A Christian is nothing less than somebody who has been moved to the depths of his being by the gospel, somebody who has been radically changed, someone whose stuff has been destroyed, and somebody whose furniture has been rearranged. Has it happened to you? Has it happened to you? If you... If you, if you how would I say this? If you've been a Christian, if you've been calling yourself a Christian for years, and yet there is no evidence that any, anything of magnitude has been in your home, anything has been in your heart, stop calling yourself a Christian. If there's no evidence that God is in your life, here's what it comes down to. Don't say that God is in your home. Don't say that God is in your house, in your life, is what I'm saying. Don't say that God is in your life. If there's no evidence that he's there, because let's what? You don't have the power to tie God up and keep him huddled in a corner. You can't do that. You don't have the power to keep God locked in a closet somewhere. If God is in your home, you will know it. And I'm not saying it, please don't mistake me. It's not overnight, right? Of course it's not overnight. It's, it's slow and it's painful. And we push back a lot. But he's patient, he's merciful, he keeps going. But the thing is, he will not let up. He's persistent, he's merciful, and he's persistent. 
If God has made his dwelling in your life, he will utterly transform everything in your life. You will no longer be living for your own sake. You'll be living for his glory. You'll be living for the sake of others. And again, it's a process. But you will begin to see fruit. Charles, I don't have the, I don't have the courage to say this, so I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon say it. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. If you have experienced the blessing of God, if you have truly experienced a relationship with God, you will then be a man or a woman or a child on, on mission to be a witness to the light. Please don't get discouraged if you're like, man, I don't see too many glimpses. This could be a step in the process. Today, this very morning, this message that God has for us today in John 1, 6, 8, this could be part of the process of, of him sanctifying you and growing you and, and, and moving in your life. Okay, don't get too discouraged quite yet. God tells Abraham in Genesis, he says, he says, I'm going to bless you. Okay, I'm going to bless you. We love that line, right? That's, that's the religion we can all get behind. I'm going to bless you. But look, there's no period at the end there yet. He's not done, he's not done talking yet. He's not done with the sentence. There's a comma. I'm going to bless you what? Anybody remember the rest of the, rest of the line? That. I'm going to bless you that you might be a blessing to others. I've heard it said like this. If God pulls you in, he's going to send you right back out. There's no exceptions. If God's going to pull you in, he's going to send you back out. Um, a perfect example of this is the prophet Isaiah. I love, we talk about him a lot here. Prophet Isaiah, one day, one Sabbath day, he goes to the temple and he's uh, worshiping. And as he's worshiping, Isaiah's eyes, his spiritual eyes are open up and he actually sees a vision of the glory of God. The glory and the majesty of God is before him. And as he sees the glory and the holiness of God, he falls down in despair and he looks at his own fallenness in light of a holy and a majestic God. And he, and he cries out. He starts calling down curses upon himself. And he says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Remember what happens next? God tells an angel to go uh, take some tongs, take a hot coal off of the altar, and then go bring it and, and to touch Isaiah's lips. So with a product from the altar, he comes and he heals. He purifies Isaiah. Catch that? He's healed through sacrifice. Okay? He's Isaiah is healed. He's purified. What happens after that? Remember, God says, so, everybody, I've got a job. I've got a job. I I want somebody to go and preach to a stubborn and to an obstinate people who will never, ever, ever listen to them. It's going to be incredibly frustrating. Anybody interested? What What does Isaiah say? Did he say, well... Can I pray about it for a couple days? Did he say, well, how is this going to affect me? How is this going to, what's the cost going to be? How is this going to affect my Isaiah time? No. He's, here am I, me, here am I, send me. That's what he says. Here am I, send me. What happened? Just moments ago, he's wallowing in self-pity and despair. And now he's been healed and purified. Send me, let me go. Let me serve. All of his self-pity, all of his inhibitions, all of his insecurities, his self-centeredness has just dripped away. What happened? He experienced God. If you have no shred of evidence whatsoever of a missional life, take some time today and ask yourself, be honest with yourself, have I actually experienced the brilliant heat of God's light? Has it actually set me on fire? Has God actually made his home in my heart? Because the reality is, before you can point other people to the light, you have to have had your own. 
it has to have penetrated the darkness of your own soul first. There's an old story about uh, Charles Spurgeon. I think it was Spurgeon who was uh, teaching a class on preaching. He was, he was teaching a preaching class. And he told the students one day, he said, I don't care if you can preach a sermon that would set the world on fire. What I care about is if I come over and I pick you up and I go throw you in the river, will it sizzle? I don't care if you can preach a sermon that would set the world on fire. What I care about is if I come and I pick you up and I throw you into the river, will it sizzle? Do you understand what he's saying? I would go so far as to say, actually, that you can't preach a sermon that would set the world on fire if you have not first been set ablaze. The stimulus for the mission of life is a dynamic experience with Jesus Christ. Secondly, let's look at the nature of the mission of life. What does it mean to be on mission? What does it mean to act as a witness to Jesus? A witness is a person with someone, excuse me, a witness is a person with some experience and knowledge that can help establish the truth. That's what a witness is. A witness is somebody who has some experience and some knowledge that can help establish truth. John, John the Baptist, John had seen, he had heard, he had felt the Messiah. He had fellowship with the Messiah. Remember when John was in the water, you know, Jesus came out, he was with him, and he even saw the Spirit come and descend upon him uh, in in the form of a dove. He heard the voice of the Father cry out and say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember, John had experienced Jesus for who he was, and now he simply had to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John's job now. Behold, look, the Lamb of God. He simply pointed to the truth. That's what it means to be a witness. We point to the truth. It's amazingly simple, yet for some reason we make it far too complicated. In our programmatic Christian culture here in America specifically, we give the impression that before you can be an effective witness, before you can be on mission, you got to take the 101 and the 201 and the 301 classes, right? you got to make sure that you hit that discipleship path. you got to get that discipleship program. And then after a couple years of classes, making sure to do your homework, making sure to do your study, then you can be on mission. Then and only then. Ridiculous. That's not the case. It's not to say that those things are bad. We have those things here. We put those things in a place because of how important we think they are. But if, 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 you, become a, if, you, if you decide to submit your life uh, this morning here at this church, when you go out to lunch afterwards, you are on mission. You are a witness at the restaurant you go to. It's immediate. You are on mission. A witness is somebody who just simply says, this is what I saw. This is what I felt. This is what I heard. He or she simply points to the truth. One of my favorite examples of this is in the book Pilgrim's Progress. Right at the very beginning of the book, you, you, you read about a man who's out pacing in a field. Out pacing in the field. And the man has just come to grips with the reality that one day he's going to have to stand before the judgment scene of God. And he realizes that because of his own fallen state, his own sin in his life, that he deserves to die. He's going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God and he deserves to die. And that He's in despair. He's like, what, what am I going to do? He actually, he lives in, a, in the city called the City of Destruction. And so he's just pacing back and forth in this field saying, what am I going to do? And this man comes along his way, and the man's name is Evangelist. And Evangelist asks him what's wrong, and the man starts to tell him, what, what does Evangelist do? He simply listens to the man, and then Evangelist pulls something out of his pocket. It's a little parchment, a little piece of paper, and he hands it to the man, and the man reads it. And what's on the parchment is very simple. It says, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to come. In other words, we don't use that phrase here all that often. In other words, what he's saying is, you're right, man, move. Do something. Don't just sit here and wallow in despair and in self-pity and self-loathing. Run to salvation. Flee from the wrath. Run to salvation. So then the man looks at him and says, but where do I go? 
Where do I flee? I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. So what does evangelist say? Does he say, well, I'm teaching a series of classes on Christian doctrine in the church in town. That's a good start. No. He lifts up his arm and he points. And he says, you see that light over there? Go to the light. Go to the light. That's what the man does is he then travels to the light. And when he gets to where the light is, he finds a gate and he goes through the gate. And he walks and he finds a path where he finds salvation at the foot of the cross. Did evangelist save the man? No. He pointed to the light where he would find salvation. See, that's the problem is that oftentimes we think that we need to be the light. You are not the light. Jesus is the light. You don't save anybody, but it's your responsibility. It's your privilege. It's your, it's your job to point them to the one who does save. Um, so how do we do that? John 17, 18. I already read it once. Jesus says, he's talking to the Father. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The word as, the very first word in the sentence, as you sent me into the world. That's very important. It's, in other words, it's in the same way that you sent me, I now send them. Okay? So then that, makes us, that, that leads us to ask the question, well, in what way was Jesus on mission? What was Jesus like in mission? Luke chapter 24, Jesus is described by his followers, by those who spent the most time with him, as one who was mighty in both word and in deed. Luke 24, he was mighty in word and in deed. That's how you and I are to be on mission. We are to be witnesses to Jesus Christ in word and in deed. First, our witness is never to be less than words. Okay, I hope that we all get that. Your witness, your mission in life is never to be less than words. You have to open your mouth. Um. Mission is never less than evangelism. Uh, John chapter 10. Um, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. It's very simple. Again, this is not a popular thing to say uh, in our, again, our American church culture. When I tell people that we actually go out and we walk the streets and we pray for our neighbors and we actually hope and pray for opportunities to be able to share about Jesus vocally, verbally, I get a lot of weird looks. But again, read the Bible. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The quintessential passage on this comes out of Romans chapter 10. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Think about, think about your own story. If you're a Christian in here, what, what brought you? Did somebody had to open their mouth, didn't it? You didn't become a Christian one day because somebody didn't order a beer at a restaurant, right? Or because somebody in some act of charity, you know, mowed your lawn or something. Wow, I just, I want to give my life to Jesus. No, somebody had to open their mouth. Somebody with some beautiful feet came. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? You're still with me on that one? Okay. Somebody with some beautiful feet came and opened their mouth. How beautiful are your feet right now? What's the state of your feet? Um, if you're a Christian in here today, it's because somebody with some beautiful feet opened their mouth and shared the good news of Jesus with you. It could have been a parent. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a pastor. For me, it was my kindergarten Sunday school teacher when I was five years old. I have a terrible, terrible memory. Jessica teases me all the time. I forget everything. Yet, I have this one etched in my mind. This one is just ingrained in my mind. I'll, I'll never forget this. I remember as, as a five-year-old little boy, 
on my knees. I remember my, my went to a Baptist church, and so the, the um, kind of old school Baptist where all the ladies wore dresses, and so this, my, my, my uh, Sunday school teacher in her dress got down on her knees with a five-year-old little boy, and she helped, she helped me ask Jesus into my life that he might be my king and, and, and set me on a path of walking with Christ. I have that ingrained in my mind. Um, I went, went after church. I went into our, family, you know, our car, and I told my family, and I, we all celebrated. It was a big old, big old ordeal. I'm here today getting to worship with you, walking with Christ, because a woman, I wish I knew her name. I wish I remembered her name. I don't know her name. I'm here today because somebody was willing, somebody had some good-looking feet, and was willing to come to me and to get down on their knees on the dirty floor with a little five-year-old boy and through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, this woman shared the gospel and, and God captured the heart of a young boy. My prayer is that by the time my life is over on this earth, that one day by the grace of God there will be those who say, there was a man who was sent from God whose name was Philip. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. My prayer is that there will be those who say there was a woman who was sent from God, and her, her name was Jessica. There was a woman who was sent from God, and her name was Gloria. There was a man who, who was sent from God, and his name was Tom. And he came as a witness, and he came to bear witness about the light, that, that some might believe through him. Just like John was a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord. May we be a people that say, these are a bunch of voices crying out in San Jose. Make straight the way of the Lord. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we be those people. Be ready in season and out of season to open your mouth. Bear witness about the light of the world. But again, we're not only called to be a witness through our words, we are called to be a witness through our deeds. It's really interesting. Jesus actually describes John the Baptist in John chapter 5, verse 35. He calls, he calls John the Baptist a burning and a shining lamp. A burning and a shining lamp. It's almost as if, in that description, Jesus is saying the same thing twice. Right? John is burning and he's shining. Burning and shining lamp. But that's not the case. This, the idea behind the statement is that John the Baptist came both shining the light of truth and burning with the heat, burning with the warmth of zeal and passion. In other words, John the Baptist came not just crying out vocally in the wilderness, but his very life was a big index finger pointing to the light of the world. His very life was a finger pointing to Jesus. You see, people are only mildly interested at best in what I have to say from up here. They're mildly interested in that. Um, talk is cheap. If we stand up here and we declare week after week after week after week that Jesus is the life-changing good news of salvation, and yet there is no evidence that our lives are actually being changed, nobody will or should take us seriously. We talk about, we talk about grace here all the time, don't we? We talk a lot of, God forbid there ever be a week where we don't talk about grace, we don't, that we don't ever talk about our need for grace. But as a result um, of, of harping on this so much about, about, about our need for grace and, and the goodness and the mercy and the provision of God. As a result of that, I get, I get this one question over and over and over. This is the one question that I'm continually getting. And it's a good question to ask. It's good to be able to process this. The, the question is, in, in various forms, it's, uh, well, okay, 
if everything is accomplished by Jesus, if it doesn't matter what I have done or what I will do because of my fallen state, and it's only, I'm only saved based on the merits of Jesus, on the righteousness of Jesus, not on my own righteousness, then why should I even try? What's the point of living right? What's the point of obeying his commands and living a moral life if it's all accomplished by Jesus? And that's a great question. Why should I even give an effort? Why should I try to obey? And here are the answers, and I don't have time to go into these, but, but the first answer is, well, it's an act of worship to the Lord. You have said he is your king. Therefore, you're saying you are worthy of trusting. You are worthy of, of obeying your commands. You are my king. It's an act of worship to the Lord. It's showing him ultimate worth. That's what worship is. It's ultimate worth. The second thing is it's for your joy. God knows better than you how the right way to live. It's for your joy that you obey. But the third answer is this. It's for the sake of the world. We live right for the sake of the world. Um, we foster personal holiness because when we live in the light, it points others to the true light. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's an act of worship to the Lord. It's for our joy. And it's for those around us that they might see Jesus for who he is. Matt Chandler said it like this. He said, The gospel consumes the Christian life itself affecting how our corporate lives play out among the communities where God has placed us, providing us with multiplication potential at every turn. If someone is a regenerated, Jesus-centered worshiper of God, this change of heart should create a certain ethic in his business style and practices. It should inspire excellence and integrity in his schoolwork. It should infuse a noticeable joy and genuineness in the way he interacts with those around him. In whatever domain God has placed a believer, he is a faithful presence and all-the-time witness of the gospel an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You catch that last term? An ambassador of Jesus Christ. That, that, that comes out of uh, something that Paul told to the Corinthian church. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and, listen, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ, entrusted with the message of reconciliation. What is an ambassador? Think of it in our context. What is an ambassador? It's a representative, right? A representative. Um, does the ambassador, who's now living in a foreign country, seek to fully integrate into that culture? Seek to get rid of his accent and his cultural traits? No. He's set apart from that country. He, his, his role is, his job is to reveal, to show, to represent what his country is like. He, he's there to, to represent the leaders. He, he, he's there to um, pursue the interests of his country and of his leader. Your role as an ambassador of Jesus is to be set apart, show what your country is like, who your leader is, and to pursue his interest. And we do this in the way that we talk, in the way that we act, in the way that we think, in our priorities, in our values. You are the embodiment. You are the representative. That's why we're called Christians. It's little Christ. That's what that word means. We are little Christ. We are an embodiment of Christ, a representative of Jesus. We are the ambassadors. My hope, is, my hope and prayer is that as God looks at our church, that God looks at Twin Oaks, at what he sees in us, 
is a hundred or so ambassadors for Jesus, a hundred or so lamps that are burning with zeal and passion and shining bright with the light of truth. Again, we are not the light. He is the light, but we are the lanterns within which the light resides. Okay? He's the light, but we are the lanterns within which the light resides. To the extent that we are clean, the light shines brighter and stronger into the darkness. Do you follow me on that? He is the light, but we are the lanterns within which the light resides. And to the extent that we are clean, the light shines brighter and stronger into the darkness. If you have a lantern that's got mud caked all over it, and you've got a, this bright, you know, brilliant light inside of it, it's not going to be all that bright. It's not going to be all that effective in lighting up the darkness. And so our role is just to let the light shine. Um, let's wrap this up. Let's ask what the fruit of the missional life is. The fruit of the missional life is joy. That's the fruit of the missional life. We, we, of course, people save, people growing in their faith, yes. But I'm telling you, there's another level we don't often think about. The fruit of the mission of life is joy. There are some of you in here who would not say today that your life is characterized by joy. If you're really honest, and I know we're, we're at church, so that's not the place to be honest. Are you kidding? Um, <laughs> when you're at home tonight, in your bed, alone with your thoughts, think, think it through. Is my life marked with joy? Um, Joy and mission are inextricably linked. If you have a joyless life, I'd be willing to bet it's because you're not living in mission. You're still living primarily for your own pleasure and comfort and progression in life. You're not living for anything outside of yourself. If you have a joyless life, it's because you have a missionless life. Let me go back to what I started with at the beginning of our time together, my little confession about Lord of the Rings here. Um, What has been stirring in my heart all this week what I've, what I've come to is that it's a manifestation of joy. Um, that's the only way I'm able to define it. As I have, again, I'm watching Lord of the Rings here, and I'm watching this big, epic, dramatic uh, adventure, good versus evil, and then i studying John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. I, I've, I've come to grips with this, this reality that, that God gives us a role in the greatest adventure of all time, in the greatest romantic drama of all time. I'm not just watching from a distance. I'm not just a recipient of God's grace where he just, you know, forces something upon me. I'm not watching from the sidelines. I'm in it. I'm in it. He chooses to use me to play a part in God's epic rescue plan. And what that does for me, it just, it's, when you're operating in, for that in which you were created, you find joy. Matt Chandler, I was reading a book on Friday morning. In studying for, for this morning, and, and I came across this passage in, in a book called Creature of the Words, written by a guy named Matt Chandler. I was reading through, and I say, this is exactly, I mean, he, he articulated in such a way um, that it kind of helped bring a lot of clarity to me. So if I could, this is a little long, but would you indulge me? I want to read this to you. This is what he said. Today, we are the most entertained generation the world has ever seen. There is more to do, more to participate in, more to connect with, more to read about, and more information to digest than at any other time in history. And yet, having so much access to so much stuff still has not filled our desire to be part of something bigger, something grander, something beyond even the wonders that come to us on our iPhones and laptops and tablets. Like kids creating and competing in afternoon conquests, we still want to be involved in bigger undertakings, bigger challenges, bigger things that make a bigger difference. We still long for a grand mission, 
When sin entered the created order, it fractured everything from ourselves to the very essence of the universe. What was once simply good now had the capacity to become perverse, idolatrous, and empty. But God had a rescue plan prepared, a plan to crush the head of the enemy and restore shalom, which is peace, in the universe, to woo home his captured bride and to make all things new at great cost. There is no greater battle or love story. And even as you're reading this sentence, this epic is happening all around us. The reason we're repeatedly drawn into these kind of myths, the reason we want to be part of a bigger something, is because God has imprinted these, these themes on our souls. One of the main reasons mankind is so restless these days, why we so easily and quickly downshift into boredom, is because instead of participating in this one great drama, we are content just to watch and to wish we were involved in something that's significant. We keep going to movies and watching television shows and buying video games that give hints of a grand romance in battle, and yet for some reason we fail to see that we're actually caught up in it. We sit here in our modern-day world demanding that the activities of the moment satisfy us and give us meaning. We order them to meet the yawning lack of significance and purpose that aches in our hearts. But what if, what if we realized more each Sunday, more each month, more each year, that God's plan of redeeming and reconciling people from all nations and people groups is as alive and electric today as it was at the dawn of civilization. The reason that we are a worshiping community of faith today is because men and women before us took seriously what they had been given, the ministry of reconciliation. They were caught up in the great romance, the epic drama, and now it's our turn. Regardless of where we are, we are instruments in the hand of God to see all things reconciled to God through Christ. Whether you're a single, young professional, an empty nester, a parent to a young family, a student, each of you has been uniquely designed and placed here by God for the ministry of reconciliation. That's the great gospel drama. You don't have to watch Saving Private Ryan over and over again anymore. You don't have to fantasize about what it would be like to wage some epic battle or to fight for some deep love. You don't have to just imagine what it would be like to be part of something huge and pivotal in history. You're in it. You're in it. Are you in it? That's the question you've got to ask. Are you in it? Are you engaged in this grand epic drama? Are you living in mission? Are you living as a witness to the light? And here's how you know. Here's how you know the answer to that question. Um, let me ask you two things. Is your, is your life marked with joy? Is your life marked with joy? And I didn't say, are you happy today? Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. Joy transcends circumstance. Is there joy in your life today? If not, it may be because you're not engaged in that for which you were created. Second question you ask is, is there any evidence? Look at your life. Think it through. Look at my life. Is there any evidence that my life is uh, one of mission? Look at the way you spend your money. Look at the way you spend your time. Look at the decisions that you make. Look at the factors that help you make decisions. And when, you, when you make bigger decisions, like where you're going to live uh, and what you're going to do and how you're going to spend your time and you, what you're going to get your kids involved in, what you're not going to get your kids involved in, is on, on any level... Is, is mission a factor in making those decisions? Did you decide what neighborhood you're going to live in because, you, because of mission on any level? Whether or not you're going to stay in San Jose, whether or not you want to move to someplace that's a little bit cheaper? Is there on any level, is there, there, has, has one of the factors been mission? Where does God want me to be a witness to the light? 
Have your finances and your time and your dreams and your goals been affected and altered in any way because God has made his home in your heart and birthed in you a new purpose? So if the answer to those two questions are no, no, I don't. If I'm honest, I don't have joy in my life. I wouldn't say that my life is marked with joy. And no, frankly, I don't see a whole lot of evidence of mission. If, those, if, if, if you're honest, you say no, both of those questions, then would you consider one of two possibilities? First, perhaps you've never actually had a radical and transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. You've heard a lot of his teachings. You've, been, you've sat through a lot of my ramblings. You've uh, thought about him as a concept. Maybe you've even talked to him as a concept. But you've never actually encountered him as a person. He is a personal God. You've never actually began a personal relationship with God. You've never truly surrendered to him. You've never actually opened the door and said, Come in, make your dwelling in my heart. If you haven't done that, be honest about it today and open the door. The Bible says Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and if anyone would open up, then he would come in and he would make his home in their heart, and there would be a rebirth, a spiritual rebirth, and as a new creation, you would be reborn with a new, again, new eyes, a new mind, a new heart, a new hope, and a new purpose. Or perhaps you have surrendered your life to the Lord. You're like, no, no Philip, I, I am a Christian. I know that I'm a Christian. But if you're honest, you, you recognize that the worries of the world, the allure of the world, has choked out some of your life and your joy and your purpose, your mission. And maybe, maybe God willing, there's something that was said here today, maybe even some, a song that we sang or something, just the Spirit is just stirring in your heart. And you're saying, yeah, I want to be part of it. I want to be, I want to realize that for which I was reborn. You want back into the front lines, but you don't know how. What do I do next? What's the next step? Let me make just a few simple suggestions. Becky talked about a couple of them just a few minutes ago. Join us at House of Grace. Do you know one of the reasons why God binds us together as a local body is so that together we can be a witness to the light. Twin Oaks seems to be a beacon of light in this community. And one of the ways that we foster those opportunities is we get together once a month and we go and we serve the ladies at House of Grace. If you've never done that, come join us on a Friday night and invest in someone other than yourself. Come to prayer and share. And again, I know, it's, I know it's uncomfortable. Whoever said that mission was going to be comfortable? Okay? Come out on prayer and share with us and pray for our neighbors. Better yet, get to know your own neighbors. Take the time, learn their names, learn their needs, and pray for them every day. And, and not only pray, pray that maybe God wants you to be an answer to your own prayers and look for ways to meet their needs. Look for ways to actually bless them and encourage them. Um, consider your finances. I know I'm not supposed to go there, but I'm going there multiple times a day. Um, look at your budget. Ask, ask the question. Ask the question, does the way that I handle my, fa- my finances, does my budget reflect a life of mission? Ask yourself, is there the same passion and diligence and fervor in the giving away of your money as it is when, when you save for your vacation or for your car or for, to invest in your hobbies? Is there the same passion and diligence and fervor in giving away your money either to the ministries or to people in need? Is there that same diligence and passion as when you save and invest in yourself? Is it wrong to have a hobby? No, of course not. Is it wrong to go on vacation and have a car? No, of course not. But do you see the same diligence in, in using your, your resources as, uh, as, as a resource for mission? Or is it simply an afterthought? Whatever's, whatever crumbs are left over. Make it real simple. You want to join the front lines? Just do this. Just do this this week. Pray. Just pray. And I'll even give you the line. You tell God this week, 
Here am I, send me. You say, God, what ways do you want me to grow in mission? In what ways, what areas? Um, Here am I, send me. And you see what he says. You see what opportunities come your way. You see where God begins to burden your heart. Here am I, send me. And you listen and you obey. And again, if you do that, it will bring him glory, it will bring you joy, and those around you will be blessed. May God turn Twin Oaks Church into a community of lanterns that burn bright with zeal and passion and shine brightly with the light of, with the light of truth. Again, for his glory, for our joy, and for the sake of the world. Let's pray.